she would come to a full healing. Lord, I lift up Lorraine's cousin Anna, and I pray for a new home for her. Just pray, God, that you would lead her to where it is that you would have for her. I lift up my sister Tammy to you, Father, and I pray for the death that... Um, of these loved ones, her father and her aunt that she's dealing with, that you would strengthen her. I pray for her husband, Steve, that you would enable him the ministry to his wife. And God, just do a work in the midst of this hardship. Lord, I lift up Shaney's nieces and pray, Father, as you have asked for prayer, that you would open the door for their university, for their schooling in Nigeria, and that, Father, you would provide for them. And lastly, I lift up my sister Joanne and just pray that she and her brother would travel well and pray, Father, that they would bring a blessing as you define a blessing to both her sister and, and, uh, and her brother-in-law. And so, Father, we just thank you, God, for this opportunity to pray. Pray, Lord, once again that we would be found faithful in the midst of what we have committed to. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, I'm just going to read verses 53 and 54, and then we'll get into our study. It says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. What we've been looking at for the past month or so is at man's hands. The ones, the ones that the Lord said that he was being delivered into according to what he prophesied in Mark chapter 9 verse 31. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after he is killed he will rise the third day. And so we've been looking at a series of hands, not all wishing to do him harm. First we saw Mary and we saw her hands of worship in that holy anointing, that perfect picture of sacrificial worship. Next, we saw Judas as he handed Jesus over in a horrible betrayal. Next week, we'll see Peter, who was hands-off when he had an opportunity, well, at least to live up to his own word and to protect the Lord, not that he ever really could, but nonetheless, we saw a human failure. But tonight, we're going to see the religious community as they laid hands on the Lord in a hopeless act. And I want to preference the study with that mindset of organized man's organized religion. And just as you had those Sadducees and Pharisees, those priests, standing before the Lord and supposedly passing judgment on him and how foolish that whole picture is, man today continues to pass judgment on who Christ is, attempting to do the same thing that they tried to do 2,000 years ago, killing Christ off, at least killing him off the truthfulness of who he is. Well, they are standing before Christ in the hope of seeing come to pass really what is a hopeless act because you cannot kill God. You cannot kill him off. Yes, they were able to put him to death, and Jesus did physically die, but he came back so much stronger, so much more glorious than even before. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Since then, man again, through his religions, has been attempting to kill God spiritually as well, but they're failing also because God is greater and God is mightier than all. How does mankind through religion kill off Christ? Well, we do so by inserting our intellect, inserting our will, asserting our ways, our opinions, and our thoughts, and bringing them to a greater degree than what God's truth presents to us. One day, all religions will be gathered together under one title or one denomination. We see this in Revelation. And as I read these verses, Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, I want you to see what is going to be the result of this one world religion. It says, Then I heard a loud voice... I'm on chapter 16. Chapter 17, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So she carried, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and on the abominations of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, this is the result of this, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And again, it's the same thing that occurs today in any kind of so-called religion, religion apart from relationship with Jesus Christ based upon, built upon the word of God. Now, if you would examine our world today and really all throughout history as a whole, what is the main thing that keeps people separating, a point of separation? What transcends all you know, prejudice as far as skin color, nationality, race, economic stature, and language? It's religious belief. And we see how that is raging in the world today, as it always has, as it always will be, as it builds towards the future and what I just read in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. I mean, today we have the Jews versus the Muslims versus the Buddhists versus the Hindus versus the cults versus atheists versus so-called quasi-Christians and so on and so forth. And the dividing issue, or it was the dividing issue, if you recall Kosovo, I believe in the 90s, it was a religious war. Well... During the time of Revelation, the inhabitants of the earth will be united in that mystery Babylon, a one-world religion. And that through that one-world religion, it's going to be how the Antichrist works, because if you recall, that first three and a half years of that time of tribulation is going to be a time of peace. And part of that peace process, well, you have the Antichrist that we've seen in past studies, who's going to be a master negotiator. He's going to be able to negotiate the issues that conflict man today. And one of them is going to be religion. And so set aside what we know to be truth, but just from the perspective of the generic worldly person, wouldn't it be great if we all believed the same? Well, that would be great if we all believed the same unless you believed in a lie. And so there is going to be this potential 
of peace that, if you will, is dangled before mankind. And matter of fact, it's going to seem to, well, come to pass. All these differences are done away with, and we truly are the world. And, well, the world is going to get along, but not for long. The worship vacuum created by man's total disregard for God will be uh, filled by this religion driven by the Antichrist. And so, why Mystery Babylon? Because it all goes back to man's first attempt at religion in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, when man attempted to build that building up into the sky. The idea was he's either trying to reach up to God or he's reaching up for the purpose of worshiping the stars. But nonetheless, God confounded him. Why? Because that was contrary to what God's desires are. I was involved in an organized religion for almost 30 years, and I did not know Jesus Christ. I mean, every week of my life, every Sunday of my life, I was in that church for at least that longest hour of the week, and still I never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can still remember the day when I came to a church where the Word of God was being taught, and it's just like a light came on, and the heavens were opened. And it was just an amazing thing. Because why? Because truth does that. Truth illuminates the soul to the realities of God. And as the souls are, related, are, are open to the realities of God, man is able to find perfect peace, even in the midst of the of the upheaval of our societies and the realities of this world. And so we find in Jesus Christ that which the world is searching for, that which the Antichrist is going to use as a lure to bring them in, but also use to deceive them. So again, just remember, religion is man reaching up to God according to his will and according to his way. Relationship is how God has reached down into each and every of our lives. It's how you became that new creation in Christ. And it was all about God, and it was not of our doing. It was in God's perfection of time that he saved each and every one of us. I was just kind of thinking about that the other night. I was just thinking of how lost I was, but how worldly I was, how insulated I was from the reality of the judgment to come, although that's always in the back of your mind, because as we've seen so many times in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But you, and we'll look at this on Sunday morning, but you become desensitized to that. You sear your conscience so you don't have to deal with it, and you put it on the back burner. But God becomes the richness of who he is, because of the great love with which he has for us, because God is gracious and because God is merciful, he enters into our lives through his divine power for the purpose of restoring, or not restoring, but to the purpose of, well, us becoming born again and becoming children of God. And we can never forget the magnitude of what that means. We can never grow, if you will, you know, intellectually past that because we do ourselves a disservice when we attempt to do that. It's the theology of Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. I always have to have that as the root of my foundation. I need to grow. There's no doubt about it. I need to mature. I got to for surely do that. But never, never can I grow past the, 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 basis, the basis of what God has done within my life. 
And so even the Jewish worship system was constantly being defiled by man. And we see this as the Lord stands before these priests as he is in the hands of these men. Again, verse 53, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. So the whole idea, what you need to see here, is all of these chief priests and these scribes and Sadducees, these people were mortal enemies between themselves, have joined together, and and now there, there is this unity amongst them, but it's unity amongst them for coming up against Christ. And really what we have here is is Jesus standing off against the Old Testament and what the Old Testament really has become. How man has defiled that. Because again, what were the Sadducees doing? The Sadducees were making bank off of the temple. They were charging people exorbitant prices for the purpose of worshiping God. God had commanded him to be worshipped in the temple. They have manipulated that in order to line their pockets. The Pharisees, the Pharisees have manipulated the system so that they would bring glory unto themselves. And so we see these things. We see the love of money, which is the root of all evil. We see pride, which is the most original of sin. And we see all of that bundled up as it stands for the purpose of confronting Christ. And for this moment, where do we see the church? Well, the church at this point in Peter, the church is void of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is yet to happen. Peter had made great boastings that he would die for Christ instead of allowing Christ to die. We saw a few weeks ago where he lopped off Malchus's ear in his attempt to deliver Jesus Christ, but he could never deliver Jesus Christ. It was never man's job to deliver Christ. It was always Christ's purpose to deliver mankind. And so here we have Peter, void of the Holy Spirit, out in the cold, warming himself by the world's flames and probably wondering what in the world is he going to be able to do. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is, these, what is it these men testify against you? The Lord desires, it's biblical, we see it in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Exodus, but it's his desire that we would have a legal system in place that would be just and fair. Because we're told in Romans chapter 13 that the governing authorities are placed there by the hand of God. And that the governing authorities, the officials, they wield the sword or God uses them to bring judgment upon those who break his laws and those who are contrary to the laws of a society. And so that being the case, again, what we see in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, we see this element of the Lord, this dynamic of God, this justice and fairness for all people. Justice, justice is defined as moral or absolute rightness, the upholding of what is fair and due in accordance with honor, standards, and rightness. Its literal meaning is to be absolute straight. 
and that our system, our court system, that man's court system, would be absolutely straight. It would not veer off in the side of favoritism or nepotism or whatever it might be, but it would seek to deal with the truth and what is necessary to see the truth prevail. So to achieve justice, because again, we all have a sense of fairness. God has created us in his image. That sense is within there. Has, has anybody ever cheated you? Anybody who's ever cheated you, there's just that, that, that frustration that wells up inside of you. So our legal system, we have a series of judges, attorneys, and juries for the purpose of getting the right answer. The United Nations, it's to oversee the world and to make sure that things go according to how they need to go, but we've seen issues with all of those. Matter of fact, if you're a football fan, if you watched the Ram game last week, there were the striped guys, the officials. They were supposed to be doing what is right and just. And if you're a Saints fan, you're not too happy today. Actually, in the, well, I won't get into the football games. But nonetheless, there, there's these, they have instant replays because we've got to get what is right. We've got to get it. It's just part of our nature. It's part of who we are. And we see this in God's plan for salvation. Because, again, you can look at it. And if it's up to us, if I'm the one that's got to become incarnate and come down and die on a cross, I'd ask, can't we just forgive him? Can't can, can we just wash away sins and not have to go through all of that? Well, what wouldn't allow God to do that is his sense of justice, because the law has been given. And if the law is broken, then judgment must be pronounced. But the problem with that is, is that all of humanity who God loves, God so loved the world. And, and, and now you can see the conflict of, of justice, but also grace and, and mercy. Because again, just to say, okay, well, you're just all forgiven. There, there's that missing element of justice. Because again, remember, if you're cheated, if, if, if you see something that's unjust, it just doesn't sit well with you. And again, that's from God. That's how God has created you. And so God, and not that God ever had a dilemma because it was a plan that he had from the foundation of the world, but nonetheless, because God is just, but also because he is loving, so we got justice that is seasoned with love, he sent his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. How can man be right before a holy God? Man could never be right before a holy God except for Christ. And that's why Christ was sent. It's why Christ was crucified. And in the movies, wherever it might be, where you've seen Christ crucified, or just reading the scripture when the Spirit shows you the reality of the crucifixion and the suffering that Christ had to go through, that wasn't so much man doing to him. This was the Father. This was the Father rendering judgment upon the Son. Because, remember, he took your place. And what was to happen to you, apart from Christ, that you were to receive this judgment? Well, the thing about it is, Christ was undeserving of it. And so we put Christ upon the cross. Everybody who's ever sinned has placed Christ upon the cross. So how do we know what was going there? Well, through sin came death. Christ never sinned. But the Bible tells us he took the sins of the world upon him. Because Jesus took the sins of the world upon him, then he was due to die. And so when Christ died upon the cross, we know, okay, he died, and the only way Christ could die is that sin was placed upon him. But then you can look at it and think, 
Well, he's gone, and how do I know that does me any good? How do I know that, well, he didn't sin, and well, how do I know any of this? Because he overcame sin. How do I know he overcame sin? Because, well, he's the only one who's ever been able to overcome sin because he overcame death, because he was risen from the dead. And it's because that he was risen from the dead that he was able to overcome sin because the sins of the world that were placed upon him. So now I have the assurance that although my sins were placed upon Christ and caused his death, he achieved victory over those sins because he came back to life. That whoever would believe upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Not perish, not have their sins placed upon them. But those who do perish, they'll have their sins placed upon themselves. Perish, we know that to be eternity apart from God. Sin still does have an effect upon us. There's no doubt about us because we still have a sinful nature, although God chooses us to see us just as if we've never sinned. But because we have a sinful nature, we all will one day, barring the rapture, we will all one day die. But Jesus, described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he was the first fruits. The first fruit? The first fruit means the first of a crop of many more to come. He was the first to be raised from the dead of many more to be raised from the dead. And so just as my Redeemer lives, so will I. And again, it's just, it's just amazing to me the depth of Job chapter 19. I mean, obviously Job is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whether he understood it or not, but he understood when the Spirit was working through him as he wrote these words in Job chapter 19, he understood that this is something special for all of humanity, for all of the ages. He wrote in, in Job 19, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever that they would reverberate throughout the ages. For I know that my Redeemer lives. The problem with any other religious leader, at some point he died. And if he died, he couldn't do anything for his sin, and he can't do anything for your sin or man's sin. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after I die, this I know that in my flesh... I shall see God. So he understood, Job understood, that he's going to have a physical presence in the sight of God after he dies here on earth. And it's all based upon, again, he didn't know the story as we know it, but a redeemer. And I don't think he could have explained it in detail as we could explain it in detail to him because Christ has come. But nonetheless, Christ is now standing before man preparing to pay that price for all of mankind. Peter, Peter's at the fire. Peter, well, Peter, it's necessary that Christ would die for you so that you would be able to live for him. Verses 55 through 60. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Excuse me. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? So once again, they have this motion of searching for justice, when in actuality, justice is anything but what they want. And so our God, our God is just, but we see those who are contrary to him are far from it. In Psalm 37, 28, it says, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. This being case, God desires for a just legal system to first be fair. We see this in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. So it has to be fair, and it has to be fair across the board, because if it's not, then it's not just. It's not justice. Secondly, it would have to be truthful. It would have to be based upon truth. Deuteronomy 19:16-19 If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priest and the judges who serve in those days and the judges shall make careful inquiry and indeed if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother so so you shall put away the evil from among you Well, you've heard of these stories as of late. They go back and they've been doing DNA testings on some people that have been convicted of some pretty serious crimes. Some of these people have been in jail for 10, 20, even 30 years. They do the DNA test and they find out it was wrong. And then you hear this travesty. This guy was locked away in jail for 30, give or take, years and he didn't deserve to be there. He was innocent. Doesn't that just touch your soul? That a man's life would be taken from him? Now, if you go to the jail, and Dwayne can testify to this, they're all innocent. They'll all tell you they're innocent. But it's when you come to the reality of the truthfulness of a man's innocence, and he was forced to pay that price, again, it affects your sense of justice. Thirdly, God desired that a just legal system would be sure. There would be no question. Deuteronomy 17.7, The hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from amongst you. And the idea here is, is that this witness, if you're sure, if this man did it, then you need to come front and center. Well, the picture that is being used here is a stoning. You're going to be the one to cast the first stone. Because if you're going to put up, then you need to put out. This is why Jesus told those of accusing the woman of adultery that he who is amongst you who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Notice, nobody cast the first stone. The injustice of what we see with Jesus' trial is he was tried without being charged with a crime. They're still searching for a crime as we look at the text. He was tried at night and in secret. He was not allowed a defense counsel. 
he was executed the same day he was sentenced. That was contrary to the law. And false witnesses who were bribed were the ones who were used. In Leviticus 26.21 it says, Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Israel was one of the most, they're God's chosen people, but because they have rejected their Messiah for the past 2,000 years, we've seen the curses that have come upon them, the hardship. And again, God uses that, and we see that picture of Israel and the hardship that has come upon anybody. You know, we come to the realization of anybody who rejects Jesus Christ. What's happening? Rather than seeking out justice according to God, the desires of Annas and Caiaphas were the priority. Their desires were the priority based upon their envy and their money. Annas, Annas was the high priest for about four years when Rome decided, this guy's got too much power. Because remember, religion and the power of religion, well, we get these religious leaders that even control some countries. Well, here's Rome. They come in and they conquer Israel. And Annas is the high priest and everybody is looking to him. And Rome decides this one man has too much power. And so Annas, Annas he was removed from that position. But he kind of became, if you will, the, he was like the godfather, if you will, of, of priests. He was still in control not formally in the sight of Rome, but he exercised control and that he appointed his sons to be high priests. He had five sons, but Rome would only allow them to go for about four years. And now he's used up all of his sons. So now he's using up his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so his son-in-law is kind of the puppet ruler of that day. And so anything that was going to be done had to first be cleared by Annas and then Caiaphas could make his rule. And so Jesus was brought before both of these men for the purpose of establishing charges so that they would be able to put him to death. We see this in Matthew 26, 15, uh, 59. It says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Had to be false testimony because Jesus never did anything that was worthy of being executed. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of a witness? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. A little insight into the essence and the nature of Christ here. First in verse 61 Annas asked Jesus, basically, is he God? And Jesus answers that he is, I am. That would have been very powerful. That was the answer that God gave to Moses when Moses asked who he is, what was his name. He says, I am, I am that I am. That's why they sought to bring charges of blasphemy. They understood what he's saying. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. 
In verse 62, when Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, in essence, and I'll show you why I say this, is saying, I am now God incarnate. And one day, even as you judge me here, I will judge you in heaven. Those people that were striking him and saying, prophesy, there's going to come a time when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, I know you. And the good thing about God's grace, if they ever, we don't know, but if they ever repented and came to a relationship with Christ, he would choose to see see them even as if they never had struck him, even as if they had never sinned. But that term here in verse 62, you will see the Son of Man. Anybody who was well-versed in Scripture, especially during that day, would understand where that would bring him, and that would bring him the same place it brings us, because our Old Testament is their Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. And you can see the parallels that are written there in verse 62, and that we come over to Daniel, where this term is, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It says, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now, Jesus was like the Son of Man. He was, I'm a son of man. Y'all are sons of, well, any male is a son of man. Your daughters of men. But nonetheless, Jesus, a son of man, we know that he was birthed through Mary, but he was like the Son of Man because although he was fully man, he was also fully God. Now, I'm a son of man. I'm not like a son of man. Jesus was like a son of man. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." And so the idea here is, is that this is the one. This is the one who's going to judge the world. We understand this as we know the scriptures as a whole. This is the one who is going to rule and reign during the millennial age. And so these men who, in their futility, are trying to unjustly judge Christ, will one day be justly judged by Christ themselves. And it's a horrible thing. But we see here, again, the rich picture of the gospel. Because all of those who reject Christ, all of those who refuse Christ, all of those who seek to put Christ to death, at least figuratively, in their life, will suffer the same thing. Christ will stand as their judge. The most symbolic statement in this section of Scripture, again, verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothes and say, what further need do we have of witnesses? Well, if you could talk to them, you could tell them the need that you have of further witnesses is to find out the reality of the truth. Because I really believe that the priests and scribes and so on, I think they knew Jesus was the Messiah. But what was he doing? Well, we're told in John chapter 3 that this light has come into the world, but men rather would have darkness. And what was he doing? They were going to lose their position. They were going to lose their power. And I think they kind of took it step by step, and they were emboldened every step that they took to the degree of placing Christ, having Christ placed upon the cross. Truth. Truth is the foundation on which a people either prosper or flounder. 
when you remove truth from a society, that society is going to fail. Remember in the book of Judges, in the very last verse of the last chapter, and everybody did what was right in their own sight. We live in such a society today, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. What we live in is what is referred to as a postmodern society. A postmodern society is a society that is void of absolutes. My truth is what I perceive it to be. Your truth is what you perceive it to be. Well, in that insanity, there's not a society that is going to be able to be sustained. That society will crumble. And so I want to look at a few dynamics concerning truth. First, truth is singular. Truth is singular, it is whole, and it is consistent. It is not fragmented. Every truth that exists is related to every other truth. There is not one truth that will disprove another truth because then by its very nature, it simply wouldn't be true. If you study creation as the Bible states it, the truth that you start out with is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does the Bible do? The Bible presents a truth statement. Then it goes on to describe that truth statement as God spoke everything into existence. And from there, it marches forward in truth all the way through to the book of Revelation. Every other known truth will then fit in place as one united truth. So again, if something is true, it's going to exist in harmony with every other truth. Truths cannot conflict. Secondly, truth is objective and not subjective. A truth is as it is and cannot be defined according to what anyone thinks that it should be. A truth is as it is and cannot be defined as somebody thinks it should be. It can be observed, it can be discussed, it can even be reinforced, but it can never be changed, nor is it open to interpretation. So again, that's why God's word is truth, and it's solid, and it's sure. It's the anchor to our souls, because this never changes. Man changes, society changes, he tries to change these things that are written here, but truth will never change. I I didn't read the article, but I saw a uh, headline on CNN tonight. It says, Lady Gaga is the face of future Christianity. And I'm just, yeah, I kind of had that same reaction. Um, Because why? Well, they're trying to define what Christianity should be apart from the Bible. I would imagine she probably made some kind of moral statement, probably that was in conflict, conflict with uh, with her president or somebody. I don't know what she did to tell you the truth. So I guess I shouldn't to tell you the truth. So I guess I shouldn't say. But nonetheless, it, 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 truth can be observed, discussed, and reinforced, but it cannot be changed. Nor is it open to interpretation. The Bible tells us truth and does not leave room for your opinion nowhere in the bible does it say what do you think you know what's what's your opinion in proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 it says every word of god is pure and he is a shield to those who put their trust in him thirdly from the perspective of the bible all truth comes from god 
which would only make sense since he created everything. He created all truths that are. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so the place that we come for truth, that we can then make an interpretation upon the opinions that are out there, the theories that are out there, and the ideas that are out there, has got to be the Word of God. This has to be the unifying truth that we have. Because if it's not, what do we got? What do we have? If the Bible falls apart, then the core of society falls apart. Because the Bible is truth, because our Lord is truth. And, and if, if the Bible, if God's spoken word to mankind falls apart, then again, everybody does what is right in their own sight. And we have what we have, or at least are marching forward today. Fourthly, the truth that comes from God has been embodied in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And then you need to see the extent of God and his truth. Jesus died on the cross. And part of the reason that he died upon the cross, that we would know God's truth. Well, mankind today has rejected, you know, the world has rejected the word of God, has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He has rejected biblical morals. And because of that, look at the simple truths. These simple truths that even a two-year-old would recognize. What is a man and what is a woman? That simple truth has been cast asunder in our society today. When is a baby a human being? Everybody's got their opinions. The Bible says, before you were formed in the womb, God has told us, I knew you. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so, as much as it disgusts me, it's not that big of a stretch for the world from their perspective. If you're going to allow abortions, why not allow it all the way through to the, just before the birth? I mean, you can rationalize this since you're rationalizing everything else, since you've cast asunder truth. And, and you've got to ask yourself, how far does this go? How far does this go? As we've cast off God's truth, how far does it go in our society? How far are we going to fall? Well, if you read to the end of the book, they see that the world is going to fall pretty far. But as far as those who build their lives upon the foundation of God's truth, we're going to soar on eagles' wings. One day we're going to stand in the presence of God and we'll hear the word of God that speaks to us and tells us, well done, my good and faithful servant. And let's all look forward to that day. But as far as today, we don't give up. We keep pushing forward. We don't compromise. See, in this, there's no retreat and there's no surrender because lives are at stake. And they're the lives of our loved ones. They're the lives of those who are the future of the church. We must stay rooted and grounded in these truths for the purposes that God has for mankind. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and the word that truly, truly speaks to our soul. Your word, Lord, that has made the difference in the day of our salvation and continues, Lord, to do, do a work within our lives every single day of our lives. 
And so, Father, we just thank you. It had to be a hard thing for Lord God of the universe to stand before these men and have them spit upon him, to have him abuse him and and, and whatnot, but it was love that drove him. And so, Father, as, as, as your son was willing to do that, I pray, Father, to the degree that we suffer today, which is nothing in comparison, that, Lord, we would prevail in the midst of opposition And I pray, Father, that our love for you would be that which would drive us. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you have given us your word. I pray that we would be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? This Sunday morning, we're going to be back in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, actually verses 13 through 17, and we are going to be celebrating communion together. Also, as Richard said about 50 times last Sunday, I watched him and we're having a couple's Valentine's dinner, and so we are currently taking sign-ups for that. And it's not just that we want your money, we want you, and we want you to be there, but we need to know how many of yous are going to be there. And what I mean by all that gibberish is we need to get you signed up so we know how many people to plan for. Other than that, God bless you. See you Sunday. Amen. With this last song, I just want to encourage you guys to Despite all the chaos that's happening in this world, as Pastor Mike just uh, said, to to let's set our hearts on the one that we know with full confidence reigns, the one that we know with full confidence is just, and the one that we know with full confidence is in control of everything. So let's just worship him.
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.